does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. You're listening to the best of Kevin Inquiry on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Hi, good morning to you on President's Day. Jake Quarry along with Kevin Bowen. Mark Dykton here as well. It is Kevin and Quarry on 93.5, 107.5. The Fan. This note, by the way, from JMV. Jeff Allen is the head coach for Bedford North Lawrence girls team. He is from Owensburg and attended Eastern Green, making him the second most famous alum in the school's history. Played two years at Vincennes, then transferred and played for Joey Meyer in the early 80s. By the way, President's Day means presidential trivia all day, which I know is to the thrill of all the listeners. For example, James Buchanan, our only bachelor president, while serving as minister to Great Britain, he helped draft in 1854 the Ostend Manifesto, which advocated for an American invasion of Cuba. I hope they got some... Bolivars and Cohibas while they're there. But uh, speaking of drafts, the upcoming NFL draft will mean that the Combine is going to be here soon. We will be live at the Combine. We would anticipate perhaps Shane Steichen joining us when we are there. But Kevin, one of the things perhaps that he will be discussing at the Combine is his staff, which continues to come together. Can we get a height and weight on every president? I feel like Trump would be one of the more NFL-ready presidents from a body standpoint. Okay. Third, well, third and one, Donald up the middle. <laughs> well, that's right. They, they call the draw play. Everybody, everybody's talking about it. We run it better than anybody. Uh, I, I would think that William Taft would be on the offensive line. Sure. There's that whole oh, yeah. era of the fat bearded presidents: Benjamin Harrison, Taft, right. Grant, Grover, the, Grover Cleveland. That's your line for certain. Well, 1, Gerald Ford. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Chris Ballard, well, yes, Gerald Ford, that's a great call. Chris Ballard would love the presidents and how much they're built in the trenches, to say the least. Yeah, NFL Combine, it's crazy to think about it, Jake. That's next week. We're going to be down there Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Shane Steichen planning to join us one of those days. Uh, but, yeah, the first reported hire for Steichen, that is a running back, or the running back's coach from the Giants, DeAndre Smith, the Steichen tie with that one. Uh, they go back to some UNLV days, so pretty early in Steichen's post-playing career at UNLV. Uh, DeAndre Smith has mainly been a college position coach, was with the Giants last season, of course, having Saquon Barkley. Certainly helps you there, but that run game with Daniel Jones aiding it as well was a big reason why the Giants not only made the playoffs, but won a game. I think it's also worth pointing out, Jake, that you look at Jonathan Gannon in Arizona now, I brought this up kind of late last week. With Jonathan Gannon taking the Arizona job, obviously Nick Sirianni is looking for new coordinators because both of his coordinators left. And you have Frank Wright in Carolina. There's all these like cult-centric, Philly-centric ties to building a staff. So I was curious what exactly that would mean for the Colts. Jonathan Gannon has reportedly hired two coordinators that neither of whom I thought would be really serious candidates for Steichen. So I think that's good news on that front. Frank Reich did hire an offensive coordinator in Thomas Brown from the Rams. So again, that is not kind of an immediate 
connection or one of the names that I would have thought about for Steichen there. But obviously, this needs to be done really by the end of this week, just more from a once you get to the combine, you know, I think your scouting department and, and just your staff in general need to be there, need to be talking to players and beginning, you know, the, the major kind of inroads into this 2023 draft class. And one of the names, when you talk about the the coaches and, you know, Shane Steichen staff, Kevin, let's go back to this. I mean, you've been around, for example, when Frank Wright came in. I mean, how does it work in terms of coaches that are under contract? Is it simply the choice of the head coach as it, and he tells the Colts, here's who I want to retain? Or is he told, hey, this guy's under contract. You've got to work with him. Reggie Wayne, for example, comes to mind. I think he's got a year left, right? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm sure a lot of that is discussion in these, you know, eight, nine hour interview, you know, interviews that you have of, okay, you know, this is what we're thinking for staff. This is what we have in building, you know, to your point, this is who's under contract for next season. So I think it's a little bit of back and forth prior to that. You know, obviously Frank Reich's situation was very, very different in that. You know, they had already hired three assistant coaches and Matt Eberflus and I think it was the O-line and D-line coach as well um, for that 2018 staff, and, and Frank decided to retain them. Um, and again, I know we've mentioned this before, but Shane Steichen has four years of history with Gus Bradley, so on paper that would seem to kind of check you know, a big box there in, in the sense of trying to keep some continuity on that side of the ball. I, I do think looking ahead to next week, Jake, and the Combine, it is a... I would say two things probably stand out to me more than any anything else for next week. First off, the Bryce Young height weight debate is going to be beyond like attention. I mean, it's it's going to be huge to see exactly what he measures in at. And I know a lot of people probably laugh at that, but I think a ton around the NFL think that is a huge indicator of you know, where he will be drafted, how teams view him holding up from a durability standpoint. I know there's a lot of people that feel like he should have just gained a bunch of weight post, you know, Alabama, you know, once their bowl game came to a close, gain a bunch of weight, don't work out at the combine, just simply, you know, do the measurables and then lose the weight, get to your pro day and then work out again and, and don't measure there. You know, it's kind of a little bit, a little bit of a finicky way to go through the process, but I do think that, that is something that would make sense for Bryce Young. But I would say second on the list, Jake, is this will be the first time the Colts will have had, and I should say the Colts brass and Ballard and Steichen and whoever else will be involved in that decision-making process. It'll be the first time they get to meet with these guys. And those 15-minute sessions will be huge because, you know, I think there's some debate on, you know, how C.J. Stroud, Bryce Young, Will Levis, Anthony Richardson, how they're viewed in NFL circles. Well, if it's close, they're, you know, how they're wired, the work ethic, et cetera, will be a huge difference in that. So I do think next week, albeit it'll be behind the scenes, of course, that'll be a massive part of the Colts, you know, starting to kind of formulate a plan of who they like. Kevin, I think, like for Bryce Young, and this is certainly the case with C.J. Stroud as well, for that matter, what's, to me, unique about this year's quarterback class in terms of drafting high a quarterback if you look at the quarterbacks that are in that mix will levis anthony richardson um cj stroud bryce young right those guys for the most part you know josh allen and i mentioned this before josh allen when he came out is coming out of wyoming right he's not throwing to anybody that's going to be an nfl level receiver 
all of those guys, maybe maybe Levis would be an exception here. But the the general thought would be that all four of them are throwing to pretty elite level talent. Now I think they are obviously all great players, but C.J. Stroud is throwing to, you know, Marvin Harrison Jr. is going to be playing on Sundays and probably have an impact right away. You know, the the guys that 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 he's throwing to, and the same is true of any receiver at Alabama. They have separation over the defender immediately, and the window is is longer for them at the college level how do they acclimate at the professional level where that window is literally collapsing instantly and I think that as much Kevin as you want to talk about the size of these players and as much as that will be analyzed and discussed and scrutinized there I'd like to go back and somebody certainly will do it I mean especially now there's probably 18 websites that specialize in exactly this but to look at how they've responded when they, after plays where they've been sacked or thrown a pick or been hurried because the conventional wisdom says the first year of the NFL for them is going to be about taking those lumps of adjusting to the NFL game. And I just think, Kevin, psychologically speaking, that is such an imperative area for quarterbacks to not get psychologically hampered to the area where they can never come back from it. I mean, that David Carr is the prime example to me, or even like Jeff George or guys that, that came in and had a lot of promise, but they were never put in the right position, and as a result were never able to overcome it. Yeah, I think two things, Jake. One, yeah, I mean, you say the word, you know, the psychological aspect to it all. Again, I think that's what next week is about. I'm mean, sure you can watch on film, okay, he was sacked here. How did he respond? Or, you know, I go back to the Jalen Hurts fumble in the Super Bowl. You know, how does he respond to that? Um, so that, again, will be a big part of next week. I think something worth pointing out, and I don't want to act like Alabama's skill guys this past year were, you know, whatever. You know, Wabash's skill group. Nothing against the Little Giants, but... I think you could make an easy argument that C.J. Stroud had by far the better offensive talent around him than Bryce Young did. I mean, if you look at Alabama's starting unit, this is not the top 10, top 15 wide receiver groups that we've seen of Jerry Judy and, and Devontae Smith and, and, and you know, Henry Ruggs and, and those guys that you know, Tua worked with and Mac Jones worked with and even Jalen Hurts worked with. I mean, Bryce Young... I think had a lot less than the normal Alabama group. Again, still had a ton of talent around him, but I don't know if any of these offensive guys around Bryce Young will be drafted you know, day one with him or even day two. Um, and he also played in the far better conference week in and week out than C.J. Stroud did. So I, I do think that is a part of the evaluating element that it's just a given that we just chalk up the Alabama kid and say, how is he going to do when he's not you know, on a create-a-player team? Well, he wasn't really on that sort of team. And again, played in the better conference. I mean, Jake, you were you know, as high on Ohio State as anybody this, right. this past year. I mean, they were littered, littered with talent. And one of them you know, is probably going to go in the top two, top three next year in the 2024 draft. So um, I think that is kind of another part of this process that, you know, in the young Stroud debate, kind of gauging how you view both of those two will be interesting. We're going to talk with Nate Atkins more on the Colts front coming up here in about 15 minutes from the star. Uh, what what do you guys make of three point dunk contest Saturday night? I I I enjoy the three point contest. I, I thought really the do. three point contest was good. I mean, listen, Halliburton coming out and getting a thirty one. I, I mean, I thought Halliburton might struggle just because 
I think in the three-point contest, you've got to have kind of a quicker release, and he doesn't necessarily, but it didn't impact him. They get, you know, he and Buddy Hill both get to the finals. I thought How the finals was, Re- was kind Reggie's of anticlimactic. reaction to him. Yeah, I mean, but I don't like the finals, though, when it comes down to it, I thought it was kind of anticlimactic the way they do it. Just like all three of them get a shot, and then, it, you know what I mean? It, it, it didn't have the same, like, head-to-head type feelings. That makes sense? Yeah, so you you cut from eight to three, um, and you don't have. I thought you would cut from eight to four to two. I, I thought that's how they would do it. But um, you know, Buddy Hield starts off with twenty five, very respectable number. Number, and if Damian Lillard goes last, you know, then that would have been kind of the big climactic moment because he. I mean, did he make all of them on the last rack? Yeah, he had to be close I mean, to making all of them there, did. and he gets to twenty six, and then Halliburton. Which I feel like you you typically see this in the three point contest. You know, the guy that kind of sets the pace in round one, well, you know, eventually isn't able to maintain that, and so Halliburton, you know, struggled in the in the finals there. And then the dunk contest. I would say more than anything on the Mac McClung front, I was just happy that he made all his dunks. Wait, so was he. He didn't mess around. He just got out there. He just okay. This dunk, that dunk, and obviously stacking the guys on on top of each other, and that reverse was great. I I do feel a little odd that like is this dude even in the NBA? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little confused on that end. But uh, until you're going to put up a big big you know sum of money and donate some to charity, I, I just don't think we're ever going to get back to even where it was you know six or eight years ago, let alone where it is now. Well, the dunk contest, he McClung himself had said afterwards. Look, I was just happy that I made them all. I, you know, I, that last dunk that he did, he apparently never made in practice. Uh, he made it when it mattered. I, I feel like we need, and, and I'm, I'm not just saying this because I'm in my last semester here, math class. But um, here we go. Was it was it really a seven twenty? People said it was a seven twenty, and I'm like five forty. I, I, I thought, thought. It, yeah, I was yeah. gonna say I thought it was a five forty. But if you want to geometry he, it up, he, feel free. He. When he dunked it, he was it was reversed, right? Mm-hmm. So that couldn't be a seven twenty. Like I, I saw several people labeling it as a seven twenty. I'm like, no, that would mean two times all the way around. Right. He went around once and then a, a halfway around and mm-hmm. behind the. I mean, it was obviously impressive. Yeah. Uh, impressive. Which president would be the best dunker, Jake? Well, Millard Fillmore because of his small height, one would assume, right? But I'll bet Abe Lincoln could get it done. Don't you think? I mean, like you. you well, actually, no. Know Abe's vertical. I'll take Does that Abe back. Does Abe wear the hat on the court? I think Johnson, Andrew Johnson would have been the best dunk contest guy because he would have actually leaped over or leapt, whichever is the right word, Lincoln while he was wearing the top hat. Can you imagine that? Hmm. Like Lincoln standing yeah. with the top hat on, 6'4", and then Johnson comes, leaps over him. Boy, just, if, that went, if that went ugly, Congress would be in a tizzy just having to... <laughs> Try and think about that. I would assume Obama for the three-point shootout, right? Correct, because he can do it with a coffee in his hand, right? And Obama's brother-in-law was the head basketball coach at Oregon State, so that that alone gives him some hooping skill, right? I bet Martin Van Buren dunked on some people back in the day. You think so? Definitely posterized a couple people. How about Oregon State? Was it last year they made the Elite Eight, or is that two years ago? Was that just the most random Power Five team to make the Elite Eight? They were close. They they put together a run. They put together a run with my. Like was that the I, COVID year? Was that here? I think that's right. I think that's right. I had a pair of Oregon State socks. Kai Steffi and I were all in on Oregon State. Man, go Beavs! Okay, Martin okay. Van Buren. Kai Steffi, where is he on the? I haven't, I haven't heard that name. Mark, have you? I twenty eight. No. Yeah, I was going to say that might. Martin Van Buren. If he won the dunk contest, Mark, what we know is he's got 
a hand slogan for the Van Buren boys, right? Yeah, you got to put it up. That's how you know they remember. <laughs> he dunks, and it's it's seven because he was the seventh president, right? Oh, you have like there we a go. Salt shaker or something in your hand. <laughs> that okay, that works too, right? Uh, we mentioned this a little bit earlier in the show. I just want to double back on it, Jake. Uh, they did the NCAA tournament committee did a mock selection over the weekends. This is before the Saturday Sunday games. Purdue was the third overall seed, so they were a one seed. They were in New York. That's where they were slotted from a region standpoint. They've got Alabama in the Louisville region, so this is kind of a little bit of a ripple effect with Purdue losing a couple here and Alabama starting to play better. If you do look at the regions on a map, Louisville would be the closest. For Bama. Um, so Purdue would be out in Madison Square Garden. UCLA, Iowa State, and Marquette were the other um, seeds, top four seeds with Purdue in that region. Jake, how about this with the Big 12 right now? Of the top 12 teams the selection committee did, again, IU was 13, so they had IU pretty high. They had them as the number one four seed. Of the top 12, so one, two, and three seeds, five of the 12 are in the Big 12. I thought, is this a new, I, I thought about this, the, the release of the seeds as they have done, does that take any of the, the wind out of the sails of Selection Sunday in any way, shape, or form? Or does it create a drama for it? I, I, don't, I don't know which way. I'm curious your thought on it. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it lessens it. I mean, obviously we've got you know several weeks to go until selection sunday i just think it's a little peek behind the curtain of what the committee likes a little bit of a glimpse of okay these resumes are a little bit stronger like if we would have you know had this discussion on friday jake and said hey where do you think indiana will appear in the mock selection we probably would have debated four or five seed right whereas they are debating here three or four seed which again that's a pretty strong thing to note about indiana's resume i don't know if i would have thought five of the top 12 are in the big 12 i mean that is clearly the best conference in college basketball this year but the the committee started doing this I think a handful of years ago I just think again it's a little bit of transparency just a little bit of a hey this is what it looks like a month out you know obviously a lot can change but I think for the most part I, I thought I heard them say over the weekend in the history of them doing it which you know whatever five or six times three of the four number one seeds have stayed number one seeds so if you're Purdue and the number one seeds were Alabama, Houston, Purdue, and Kansas in that order. You know, obviously that there's a good note on Purdue if they can seventy five percent chance with that, you know, great math that I've learned from you. You you would hope for Purdue's standpoint that this little skid they've hit was just a, the bump in the road, right? Maybe Ohio State was the best medicine for that to kinda to kinda get back into the right side of things. And certainly they what Purdue did do, Kevin, and I remember talking about it with you at the time that it happened. That early pre-conference schedule for Purdue built them some cushion because they have so many impressive wins away from home, mind you. Um, you know, they have a, a huge win over Gonzaga, for example. Well, Gonzaga is not the Gonzaga of old, but then you look at Gonzaga's resume. Like, I was looking at, at Gonzaga, and I'm like, wait a minute, why would they be ahead of St. Mary's who's beaten them and is leading their league? Then I looked at Gonzaga's resume. I mean, they beat Alabama, for example. They have impressive non-conference wins, but they have a loss to Purdue, which helps bolster Purdue's profile, for example. Another thing that – let me tell you something that I was curious about last week. During Purdue's kind of bump in the road there, 
it seemed as though all of a sudden teams were playing them more physical and there were you know there was a lot of question mark about the officiating and i got curious and i know this will shock both of you guys that like i almost sound like a conspiracy theorist here but i did get curious because of the big 10's futility in the ncaa tournament over the last 20 or so years and one of the big complaints that people have about the Big Ten's performance in the tournament is, well, maybe in the tournament things are just officiated differently. So I became curious whether or not the Big Ten might have said, let's officiate things differently in the last quarter of the season to prepare our teams for the tournament. So I asked Bo Borowski, I said, hey, is is how off base am I with that? And he said, well, that's probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I didn't realize this, Kevin. <laughs> People often say, when people talk about officiating, what do they say? Well, the Big Ten officials, Big Ten officiating is terrible. You know, Big Ten officials are awful. Those were ACC officials doing that game, etc. The NCAA has no league-designated officials. If you're an official, you do Big Ten game, Big 12 game, ACC game, SEC game. You get on each week, you log, and you find out where your games are, or two weeks, or however far out it is. So guys doing Big Ten games are doing ACC games and Big 12 games. and So I don't know that you officiate any different. The style of play might be different, but the way that you officiate the game seemingly is no different from one league to the next. So anybody that thinks that Big Ten officials, quote-unquote, have some sort of a different whistle than the game that you watched last week in an SEC game, uh, same cruise by and large. I mean, interchangeably across the board. And yeah, he confirmed like that I'm a moron. Well, thank you, Bo, for that. I've always loved Bo, and that certainly I'm going to have to owe him a text here in the break <laughs> for that. Um, I, it almost feels like, I don't know, more big guys, and that's a little bit harder to officiate, or you aren't used to that in every conference. I don't know. I, I, I'm probably just grasping at straws here. I did think something to note on Purdue, and we can lead off the morning check down with hearing from Matt, Matt, Matt Painter, but I thought yesterday with Purdue, they turned it over on the first two trips down the floor, like the same exact turnovers they have had in this recent you know, a little bit of a lull of they just – it almost feels like no one else can bring up the ball besides Braden Smith. And they're all trying to, like, hand him the ball, like, here you go. Like, he's our best player in fifth grade, and he's got to touch the ball every time down the floor. It's like, bring it up and let you, – you have other smart guys that can get into the offense and guys that can throw entry passes into Zach Eady. They obviously settled into it and absolutely dominate Ohio State. But, um, again, with Purdue – People are going to be hounding Braden Smith, knowing that that is their you know, lead ball handler by far. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. All right, Nate Atkins from the Indianapolis Star are going to join us 
right now. This, you know, probably will be one of the quieter weeks that we've had so far with the Colts offseason. I guess there were some quiet moments late January and early February just kind of waiting for the coaching hire. But with Shane Steichen announced last Tuesday and then the combine starting pretty much next Tuesday, you know, outside of some coaching hires, it should be a pretty quiet week on that front. So let's head to the Payless Liquors Hotline. And let's bring in Nate Atkins from the Star. Nate, I actually want to start on the free agency front, if you don't mind. I just posted something to our website, uh, kind of ranking the tiers of free agency here for the Colts in 2023. If you look at the list, there's a handful of starters on that list. I think, personally, the most important one to re-sign is your kicker in Chase McLaughlin. If, if you take Chase McLaughlin off the board, who would you say is the most important free agent for the Colts to re-sign? Yeah, I think Chase is an easy choice for that uh, just because they need a kicker. But if you kind of move beyond him, I mean, you know, if they decide to bring Gus Bradley back, I think they need some variation of uh, the wide nine rusher that Unique Ngakwe is. And so I have a feeling that if Gus is here, that's going to be you know heavily in the consideration is re-signing him because the fit is so strong and because his defense the Seattle style defense is just built so much around uh, that guy being able to just kind of fly off the edge and kind of rush like it's third and ten on every play. Uh, you know, I've I've seen those. There are other guys that could fit that. They could go after a guy like Carl Lawson, who just got released by the Jets, who's uh, you could you could maybe argue is an upgrade over uh, Ngakwe. But I just have a feeling if their if their plan is to bring back uh, Gus, then it just seems likely that that in the consideration of be re-signing one of the guys that he's had in three stops now, and that's Ngakwe. So I think that's probably the most, uh, I guess it's the most likely of the other guys. But I mean, you can certainly talk yourself into you know some of these other, like Paris Campbell, I think you can make a similar argument for just in terms of the fit here and what he's looking for and what's likely going to be, I would assume, a one-year deal for him to kind of try and build off of last year. But... Um, I could also see him. There's other fits for him out there, whereas Ngakwe just kind of feels like the best fit he's going to find. Nate, in your opinion, Nate Atkins is our guest. He's on the Payless Sugars Hotline. You can read his work at the Indianapolis Star covering the Colts. We knew so much about the coaching search. That's over now. Shane Steichen is the guy. We know the combine is upcoming, but there is still work to be done between now and then. What is the the chain of priority? Do you believe over the, like say between now and the combine? If you're Chris Ballard, you've got a checklist. What is next on that checklist of what you need to get done? I think first and foremost, it's hiring the coaching staff, especially figuring out the offensive coaching positions, quarterbacks coach, offensive coordinator stuff like that because what you want is eventually to get that staff here so they can show up at the combine and, and go through the scouting process with you know as a staff where they're looking at uh, the quarterbacks who decide to throw where they're you know they're there you know not all of them are going to be in the meetings with the quarterback but but some of them might the offense coordinator will be um, and, and it's going to be a big process to figure out you know they're kind of where they're leaning whether it's Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Will Levis, Anthony Richardson are sort of the guys in that mix in the first round. And that's that decision is going to sort of hover over everything as it always kind of does here. But especially this year, the first year they're going to draft a quarterback in the first round, first time since Andrew Luck. So kind of getting the, just the people in place for that, I think, is uh, is just incredibly important. And then 
um, and then letting them go through this process together. Whereas, you know, Ballard's approach is always going to be patience and he's going to take this through, you know, some, some different levels with the pro days and everything that they can possibly gather on these quarterbacks. But having that staff in place right now, I think is pretty important for figuring that out. And then obviously that works for other positions too, when they start scouting, you know, offensive linemen and, uh, wide receivers and all of that, just having the right people in place where you can kind of start to make a few, you know, stylistic connections uh, based on scheme as well as, you know, maybe um, just just getting some of those coaches' input when they're there on the scene and uh, at the combine I think is important. Kenny's Nate Atkins for the Apple Star. He joins us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Nate's latest really good piece, a 10-part plan to set the Colts up with a franchise QB and bright future. There's a couple items in there, Nate, that I wanted to get to. Let's start up, start off with um, maybe what you think is the loftiest of the 10 items. You do have a trade-up for Bryce Young in there. What would you consider maybe the most far-fetched of any of those items? Uh, in terms of likelihood, I think the I, I think when I threw out the one on, uh, uh, you know, I threw out Greg Roman as an option for offensive coordinator and sort of pairing him up with an experienced quarterbacks coach, someone you really trust is sort of that uh, ear in the quarterback or that the voice in the quarterback's ear. That was just sort of a a little bit random because I mean Shane Steichen's not been connected to Greg Roman on any level that I know of, and that's sort of a little bit more out of the box. The idea behind that one was just, you know, pair Shane Steichen, who's this uh, passing game guru with someone who's just so skilled in the run game and building out the blocking scheme and that entire approach of it, uh, I think would be a nice fit here if they could find someone like that. I don't know that, you know, that I don't know that that's the direction that they're looking at, or that's even necessarily what they want or what they can pull off. And, you know, Greg Roman's the type of guy that, you know, he's going to interview for some different coordinator spots. He's been one in for three different teams. So, you know, he would have to come here under the, you know, and feel good about the situation of what his role is as a non-play-calling offensive coordinator. So that was, I guess, a little bit on the on the loftier side. And I think I also had, um, you know, a suggestion in there for, you know, if they, especially if they go that route, it would be a great fit is going after uh, Orlando Brown at left tackle. Uh, I think that would, you know, that would be as, as good as they could do to try and set up a rookie quarterback for best in year one is get him a dominant left tackle. But obviously, those guys just don't often hit free agency. So there were a couple in there like that that are more like, if if this could work out, if it could break a certain way, this would be a pretty nice outcome. While also understanding that that's probably not the most likely outcome for what's actually going to play out. You had in there extending Jonathan Taylor, and I fully expect the Colts to to do that. Um, you know, I, I, I've always been a huge believer you don't draft the running backs till day three of the draft. I, I just think shelf life and all of that, you just wait till round four and build your running back room with those sorts of picks. But I thought you, you made a really good point in there that extending Taylor would be very important for your rookie quarterback. And honestly, it's something I probably should have thought about before that. But it does make a lot of sense. I mean, no matter who you draft, if you can provide some stability with a lead back that would be huge for him you know Justin Herbert walks in and they've got Austin Eckler and Jalen Hurts walks in there and they've got Miles Sanders I do think that is an angle Nate that you bring up that again I probably should have but it it will be really important for whoever is this next quarterback yeah I think back to when uh, Dak Prescott stepped in and that wasn't the plan the Cowboys had but it's how it broke out with Tony Romo getting hurt and they had, you know, they had Zeke Elliott at the time, and they, it just 
you kind of let him sort of ease himself into that offense where he didn't have to be the star. He was more the distributor, more the, the guy who could grow, you know, sort of week by week, be better in the second half than the first half, and uh, and then better year two than year one, but not be that guy that's, that's dragging the whole thing. Where there's sometimes there's just teams that do that a lot on quarterbacks. Uh, and I just think especially like the run game complement of it is, is just important because – you know, it's, those are plays. You know, they, when even some of the guys who love the passing game the most talk about the run game, they talk about it as like a breather, as a compliment. Like a, it's plays the quarterback and the whole passing game don't have to run. And you know, it's first downs, it's touchdowns, it's the way that they finish drives. And Jonathan Taylor is that kind of guy that you know when he's really going, like we saw two years ago, for the most part was, you know, he can turn those twenty yard, what would be a twenty yard blocks gain into you know, 45-yard touchdown. He can end your drives early uh, and get you out of these issues that they ran into last year. They couldn't do that, which is, you know, all the red zone stuff and how hard it is to move the ball between that that final stretch in the 20s. And to give a rookie quarterback that kind of advantage where they're just drives where you don't have to manufacture the same way, I think matters. And then obviously it brings in some other stuff with, uh, you know, with play action game and, and depending on what kind of quarterback they get, if it's a mobile quarterback, you know, it helps even, you know, the, that threat, the, the constant presence of them potentially uh, gashing you in the run game can help that quarterback's rushing too. I think Jalen Hurd saw that with some of the backs uh, in, in Philadelphia. And then Dak, like I mentioned, saw that with uh, the Cowboys and Zeke Elliott. So, I, you know, I, I kind of agree with you in a general sense. If you're going into the draft, that's not the position. I think you've got to be a real – difference maker to uh to be someone that you would draft that high and, and then in this situation to pay that high and with Jonathan Taylor you worry a little bit about is he good enough on third downs in the passing game to really command that or you can you manufacture enough of that running game with other pieces but the one part of the run game I just don't think you'll find out elsewhere is that breakaway speed uh some of the top ball carrier you know speeds in the NFL a couple of years ago he just was dominating that list and so that kind of gift to a rookie quarterback, I think, is uh, is pretty important, and it and it can make the deal worth it, even if you know in a vacuum, it's it's not maybe the route that everyone would go. Nate, how convinced are you that the Colts are going to be drafting fourth? Uh, not not that convinced. Um, I've been saying, yeah, you know, I, this is an idea throughout there. The beginning of last year was. I, you know, I thought that the Bears would be pretty up there in the draft, and I just thought that there would be a connection there. And it just happens that they're number one now. And you think through some of those connections, you've got uh, you know Chris Ballard worked with Ryan Poles, the Bears GM in Kansas City. Uh, the you know the Colts have players that Matt Eberflus loved here in Indianapolis, and maybe some players that even if he didn't coach directly on defense, he respected, admired, and thought you know, is they're trying to build out a, a bazillion needs on the Bears that he might like there now. And this is just sort of the year when you think about the way this is aligned where, you know, the Colts can't mess around anymore. They've done many years of this where they, they just try and find, you know, a, a good value option at quarterback or something to just kind of get by with, either an older option or Carson Wentz that costs one first-round pick rather than two for like a Matthew Stafford. And they keep getting burned by it and they keep, they keep settling and they keep not finding that answer. And I think this is the year where if they identify, as they look at these top four quarterbacks, if there's a guy who 
or two guys who are just a cut above. Just I think even if there's two guys who are cut above, I think they've got to try and make a move. They've got to really look at it at least because you know the Texans are taking one at number three, and then all it takes is a team like the Panthers or the Raiders to trade up over you, and then all of a sudden you're getting your third favorite option, and I just think that's a bad route in general to go to solve this when with what they've been through and the fact that they don't have a bridge quarterback right now. So, you know, if, if I had to guess, I think they're going to trade up to number one, and that's not something that anyone has, you know, has directly told me. Obviously, this is early in the process, but I absolutely expect them to get to the combine next week and have those conversations that they're not – you know, I, I think they're having them already, but really that's when you can see that move where we've seen that before where uh, when teams trade out that number one pick, I remember the year that the uh, uh, that the Rams moved up and did it for Jared Goff. You know, th- those come together pretty quickly. And, uh, and, and, you know, early in the process, it just helps. Like if the Bears are going to do that, it helps them set their needs for free agency. And, you know, the 49ers made their move before they knew who they were going to draft at number three uh, the year they took Trey Lance. Again, it's tricky. It's not normally Ballard's nature to sort of like make a trade and then really make a trade at all like that and then and then decide, you know, later which guy we're going to take. But there's a race to it right now. And so I, I just think that at some point when they've put it off for this long and they have a chance to get to the number one pick, that's not going to be that crippling because it's moving up three spots and it lets the Bears still get a top defensive player by falling to number four. Uh, there's just so many dots to connect there, and I think this will be the year they pull the trigger. I, I think it's interesting, though, because if you really look at it, like we we assume without hesitation that they're going to have to get into, say, one, you know, you want to get in front of Houston, I guess, if you want your quarterback's spot. But there's like this automatic thought, Nate, that – Indianapolis is who Chicago will trade with. But do we know how many teams are probably or how many markets are having this exact same conversation where they just assume they're in other words, do you think there are others that are trying to move up? Yeah, for sure. I think you think it's a team like uh you know, some of this is gonna be decided by what happens with the the quarterback dominoes in free agency. Someone's gonna get left out. Someone who wants, you know, either Aaron Rodgers or Derek Carr. You know, there's there's just more teams than there are guys to go around between the Raiders and uh, you know and Jets and Titans potentially and and Panthers and uh, there's there's just Falcons. There are just enough quarterback needy teams that at some point when they get left out, like it's it's like musical chairs. Like they gotta they gotta figure out what's the next pivot. You think Arizona and, will trade out? Uh, I think it's yeah. I think that's possible. You know they. They're they're in a weird spot. They've got an old roster with a young quarterback. I know, so. and that's they're the curveball though. Because if they if if they decide that they want pieces, then all of a sudden now you have. In other words, the Colts have kind of this safety if Chicago didn't trade out, and that Houston you know is going to take a quarterback, but those other two may not. But that becomes the dangerous territory, right? Uh, of getting burnt by the fact that one, if not both of those teams, could get a quarterback hungry team in front of Indianapolis. Oh, yeah. Like, if the Bears move down, say the Bears trade with the Texans and they just go to three, and then, you know, the top quarterback's going to Houston, then all of a sudden there's two spots right behind the Texans where the next two quarterbacks could go. There is a world where the Colts could get their fourth choice at number four if they're not willing to make a jump. There's going to be certainly the teams at the top are going to play it this way. The thing that's like, 
the, the advantage the Colts have over any of those other teams coming up is that those teams only have to drop to four. And so, like, if the Bears, if they decide, say, that, that you know, right now it's considered Jalen Carter and, and Will Anderson are just a cut above everybody else as players to draft, if they want one of those two guys, they can't really afford to drop further than four to get them. So going to, like, number eight with the Panthers, that's, you know, that's, that may be too far of a jump for them. Or maybe it's just less interesting or less enticing than dropping to where the Colts are. But, but yeah, I think the risk is not making a deal at all because at some point, you know, if your team like, if your team like the Cardinals who, who just realized we have too many holes to fill with one pick, uh, yeah, it, all it takes is one team being, you know, being bold enough to offer a future first to jump over you. And then, then you're in a, a little bit difficult of a spot. So much unknown, so much debate over the next couple of months. Again, the Combine underway next week right here in Indianapolis. Nate Atkins from the Star with us. I uh, encourage everybody to check out kind of that 10 items blueprint that he's laid out. Some really good stuff in there. Nate, thanks for the time this morning, man. Yep, thanks for having me. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Kevin and Query, on President's Day Monday, I can just feel Jake's smile states away from um, oh, yeah. this glorious holiday that is President's Day. A lot of Florida ties, I would assume, to some presidents. Well, I don't know about a lot, but... Well, not Andrew Jackson. You know, uh, Speaking of the All-Star game last night, do you know that, because the All-Star game, a lot of shots put up, right? Did you know that Teddy Roosevelt was actually shot during a speech and insisted on finishing the speech? Oh my gosh! <laughs> you talk about toughness that That's right. generations younger than him certainly do not uphold. Hey, now wh- mean, where was he shot? Is, is it- uh, he was giving a speech. Let me see. I, I'm not sure the exact location. Um, I was more. I was more worried about the body part than the location of in the, said che- speech. the chest area. He was shot. Okay. <laughs> I know, like not like in the leg, right? Let me catch my breath a second. I uh, in 1912, Roosevelt was on the campaign trail, running for a third term. Uh, he was actually in Milwaukee, standing just outside of his hotel, preparing for a speech when a saloon owner, John Schrank, uh, managed to shoot him. The apparently the bullet got lodged inside of like a a compartment near the breast pocket of his suit and he insisted on it. he had a 50 page item inside of his breast pocket i don't know how big the pocket must have been <laughs> 50 pages in your pocket. he completed four layers completed there? his 84 minute speech before going on and being medically looked at I'm just incredible i mean got to be the toughest president of all time yeah it's pretty impressive the durability of those pockets back then my god 50 pages <laughs> yeah you know we could have used uh, an ounce of that toughness last night at the nba all-star game but it was certainly a glorified layup line alex golden from setting the pace joins us now to talk about that and look ahead to the rest of the season for indiana alex am i just have i not been paying as close of attention in recent years but was last night like a step even closer to this is the pro bowl for the for for football yeah last night was pretty bad i mean it's always been pretty bad in, in previous years too in terms of you know the level of competition but the Elam ending the last couple of years has been really, really 
right. made it pretty fun. I remember there was a lot of good defense in that last fourth quarter. But this fourth quarter, it felt like they were still going through the motions. Like, they didn't care. Maybe the lead was so big that, you know, Team LeBron just kind of threw in the towel. But, you know, I, I don't know. It was one of those games where I was basically watching it because uh, you know, we do a podcast talking about the Pacers and Halliburton was out there. So, I had to see how he played. But if Halliburton was, wasn't in the game, I doubt that I probably would have watched that last night. I just thought, Alex, the – We've always known the, you know, the All Star game used to actually be a pretty competitive game, but I, and maybe people like it. I, I mean, some of the athleticism on display is truly remarkable, but it really it almost became awkward in the fact that, you know, it, it kind of was like the beginning hour of this program with Kevin on location. Like, there's a delay there, and so you, you kind of don't know which one's going next, and that's what it felt like watching that game. Like they didn't. Each each time down the floor, Alex, it felt like they were kind of looking around, like, "Well, who, who, what are we supposed to do here?" And it was just awkward. <laughs> yeah, there there were some awkwardness in that, especially from SGA. I felt like a couple of different times where he just kept passing the ball, wouldn't shoot it. Uh, I didn't really get that, but it, it I don't know. It was just one of those things where, to me, like, yeah, there were some athletic dunks, but I would have enjoyed seeing more dunks in this type of thing, and like not just like half-hearted dunks. <laughs> there was a lot of. Uh, shooting especially in the second half I felt like Tatum and Mitchell were kind of competing against each other trying to see get the most points to get the all-star MVP and you know I think maybe the most interesting thing was was Tatum versus Brown at the end of the third quarter but it got to the point where the other eight players on the court just stood there and watched them and I'm like okay this is this is kind of getting out of hand so I it's an all-star game it is what it is I really don't know if there's any perfect way to fix it I think the Elam ending was the, the best way to make it a little bit more competitive, but I just I don't think the players are bought into making it more competitive than it is. So I think it's going to be what it is for the for the future in the time being. Yeah, it doesn't have it doesn't help when you know each captain exited early for different reasons. Um, you know, injury wise with Giannis and LeBron. I, I've felt this about Sabonis each of the last three years when he's been in the All Star game. He looks like me at a sixth grade dance, just having no idea <laughs> what to do out there. Okay, All Star weekend is over. Alex Golden setting the pace is with us right now. The Pacers back to practice tomorrow, and then again Thursday with Boston before they hit the road for a few games coming up end of February, early March. I'll leave it pretty open ended for you Alex what do you want to see in the final 22 games oh yeah there's, there's a, a lot here to talk about I, I want to see them develop more I want to see guys that haven't been playing as much I want to see more Jalen Smith I want to see more Isaiah Jackson I want to see less Daniel Pies I want to see Kendall Brown a little bit I want to see what he can do in the NBA give him a little bit more of a chance in that rotation uh, Jordan Moore I'd like to see what he can do as well um to me, the Pacers right now, they're in the, they're the 12th spot in the Eastern Conference. They're the sixth worst record in the – or, yes, uh, sixth, uh, sixth best record of uh, getting the draft odds there. So, I guess you could say sixth worst record in the NBA. To me, they could make the play-in if they want to push. They're only two and a half games back from the 10th spot. But I think what's best for the Pacers moving forward is to try to get into that best draft position they can get into. So, Looking at the schedule, it's not going to be easy. A lot of road games here compared to home games. I think their next 11 of their next 15 are on the road, and their home games are pretty tough for the most part. So I think the schedule, while it's still the, I think it's the 23rd toughest remaining, they got some cupcake games on there against Detroit like three times, stuff like that. But 
I think I want to see development. I don't want to see them push for the play-in. And I think when Kevin Pritchard did his end-of-season presser saying they don't want to be 8th, ninth, or 10th, that's really the only hope they have if they want to win games. So, personally, I think I'm trying to develop, see what I have talent-wise. Uh, I want to see Matherin and Halliburton together more, and I want to get a, a, the best draft pick that I can possibly get. Yeah, I want to focus there on that last point that you made, and I I really appreciate you laying out so many things you want to see and knowing that Rick Carlisle would laugh at so many of those. Um, oh, but yeah. on Benedict on Benedict Matherin in the starting lineup, I, I have not been one. I mean, obviously my Matherin infatuation is well documented, but I have not really been one that's like, all right, he needs to be in the starting lineup. Like, what you know, what's going on here? But now I think you are there. I mean, you just laid out where this team is from a record standpoint. You've got 22 games to go. You're going to get a practice in tomorrow. You're going to get a practice in on Wednesday. I just feel like it's a golden opportunity to, you know, see in a 20-game sample size what the future of your backcourt looks like together, starting together. You know, you can stagger them in with the second unit here or there. But when you look at the starting group, Alex, lately, they've kind of rotated a little bit. You know, a little bit of Nemhard, a little bit of Duarte, a little bit of TJ McConnell. It almost seems like why not just throw Matherin in there, get him with Halliburton, and do that for the final 22 games so you can go into next year saying, all right, this is the group we want to start opening night. No, I completely agree. I, I'm not really sure why Carlisle's been kind of stubborn on, on turning Matherin with Halliburton. You know, it is what it is. I'm not too concerned about it, like you said. It, it's just one of those things. Now is a perfect opportunity to see what you have. And they went ahead and pulled Nemhart out of the starting lineup against the Bulls the last game of the uh, before the break. And they started T.J. McConnell. And I think that's because T.J. McConnell did a pretty good job the last time they played the Bulls guarding Zach Levine. I mean, Zach Levine had like seven turnovers in that previous game. So it did make a little bit of sense, but at the same time, it's just like, you know, McConnell can't hang with Levine for a full 48 minutes. I mean, I mean, one game, sure, maybe, but not for the longevity of it. And it's like, what's the point here? I know they had lost a bunch of games, so maybe they're just trying to get a win before they went on the break. So I just feel like you got to play Mather and Halliburton to see what you have. I understand that you can't really bench Buddy Hill, but at the same time, what I would love to see is Andrew Nimhard go to that bench and let him run the second unit and maybe give McConnell a couple you know, nights off here and there just to let Nimhard kind of run that second unit with Chris Duarte, see what you have there. Because I, I think really at this point, you need to know, can Nimhard be the guy to lead the second unit as the backup point guard? Or is he better suited playing off ball next to a guy like Halliburton? Like what is his actual you know, best attribute that he can bring to the team. So personally, Matherin to me, you know, if you watch that Rising Stars game, he looked like a guy that was out there ready to showcase that, you know, he belonged. And I, I think Matherin has the highest ceiling on the team uh, right up there with Halliburton. I think you've got to see what these two can be together. And honestly, I think that will help you in terms of who you should draft to go with them. So that to me is how I would approach it now. Like you said, Carlisle kind of stubborn in his ways, doesn't usually – uh, cater to rookies very much. I know Matherin, he's got to work on his defense and stuff like that, but I think this is a great opportunity with 22 games left to get him some more time with Halliburton to see what they really have for this future. Do you feel like, Alex, that Alex Golden's our guest on the Payless Lickers Hotline, do you, do you feel like the Halliburton injury and the time away kind of reset the trajectory of the season goal? And by that I mean it didn't feel like they were overtly, quote-unquote, tanking at the beginning of the year, but rather they were simply expecting 
that they weren't going to win a lot of games. Then they got out to a good start. They looked really promising. And then Halliburton goes out, and you kind of go right back to square one. And it seems like at this point, you're better off just staying there. Is it going to be more apparent now than it was at any other point in the year that they are not as focused on the standings? I would I would assume so. Um, but you know what they say about people who assume. So it's just it's hard to read because you know the players they don't want to lose games and they want to make a push for the play in probably because they want that playoff experience, especially guys like Buddy that he's never been in the playoffs and Halliburton is a young player and he wants to lead his team to, to winning. Nobody wants to try to lose games, but you know, last year they lost ten games in a row to end the season and I think you get to a certain point, you're going to realize, okay, we don't really have a good chance here. Are we going to position ourselves? Now, Chicago, they owe the Orlando Magic their pick. It's top eight protected, I believe. So they have more incentive to lose games, but they also have a veteran roster. So it's like looking ahead of them, are there, are there teams that might try to lose? I don't, I don't think Washington's in that boat. I don't think Toronto's in that boat. So it, it's going to be an uphill battle for the Pacers, but I, I don't think that they're going to initially intentionally take – but if you start seeing guys like Kendall Brown, uh, Wara get some minutes, uh, Isaiah Jackson playing over Daniel Tice, that'll be like an indication of, hey, we're trying to develop, we're trying to see what these guys are. We're not tanking, but we are looking to, you know, try to get these guys more playing time to see what we have. So I, I think there's going to be more of a focus and probably a shift because the Halliburton injury 100% changed the trajectory of this team. There's no doubt about it. Um, they, they look like a a team without, you know, a car without an engine with, with Halliburton out there. So he is uh, he is the glue that holds this team together. And it wouldn't surprise me if there's a couple games where he doesn't play as well down the stretch. I just I feel like this is a, a great opportunity for the Pacers to kind of just reset and focus more on development and getting in a better draft position. Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. Just knowing them, I feel like they'll make one final surge here right out of the yeah. break, see where they're at, and then you know maybe mid-March, late-March, things change. All right, Alex, last one from me. Um, again, Alex Golden setting the pace with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Um, I'm watching the game last whatever it was. I guess it was Wednesday, the Chicago game. Awful start, horrid start. I'm like, all right, enough of this. I flip over to watch Alabama. And Tennessee, and I'm watching Brandon Miller, and oh my, um, I like a lot of Brandon Miller. For those that haven't seen him, 6'8", 6'9", really long, beautiful shooting stroke, and shoot it well. A little bit of work off the dribble, sure. I get a lot of Paul George vibes with him. I, he strikes me as a guy that cares on both ends of the floor. Uh, I like me some Brandon Miller. Uh, who else should we be watching besides him as the college basketball season closes itself out? Yeah, I, I'm right there with you with Brandon Miller. He's uh, he's actually number three on my big board that I'm putting together right now. I've got to focus more on that as the Pacers have lost so many games. I uh, wasn't sure they were going to be picking that, but Brandon Miller for sure. If they can get up to three and get him, I think he is the perfect Carlisle guy. And a lot of podcasts that I've been listening to have said he's been the most consistent freshman of this class. Now, I think another name to keep an eye on, uh, you know, I've talked a lot about him in Thompson, but he's been playing a lot of point guards. So I'm not sure if that's necessarily the direction the Pacers want to go, but he is a freak athlete. He's six foot seven. I think, you know, Rick likes having two ball handlers out there, so maybe you, know, you can play him at the three, and, and he's still got a lot of development to go shooting-wise, so uh, his shot has not really come together in the overtime elite, so that's one of those things he's going to have to work on. 
But another name that I've been keeping a close eye on is Jarris Walker out of Houston. Uh, there's a he's been shooting the ball pretty well this year, forty percent from three of like the last fourteen, fifteen games. Round seven, kind of a thicker dude, right? Back. Kind of a kind of a bigger guy. Yeah, he is a bigger guy. I think he's more suited as a four than he is a three. But the Pacers need a four pretty bad. They need a three and a four, in my opinion. But I, I think he would really fill that position as a four. Now I have heard some concerns that people think he might be more of a small big. So that's something to keep on as well. But those are the three names I think in that three, four, five range. Um, you know, you really don't want to go another guard because Keontae George has been pretty good, but he is more of a guard type of player. And then other than that, like uh, Sore Thompson, uh, a men's brother, his son's brother, he's, he's got some potential as well. But once again, he's not the defender that a men is, and he's going to have to work on his shot as well to grow. You know, there's, there's a lot of good talent in this draft. It's just trying to figure out where everybody falls because Cam Whitmore was the name that I was really high on, and he's kind of falling a little bit at Villanova, but I still think there's a lot of potential with Cam Whitmore as well in this upcoming draft. You know, the I can't remember where I saw it, Alex, but I saw the other day somebody posted something that said that they thought Benedict Mather will have a better career than Victor Webinyama, and I'm like, okay, well. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, he's only like the most highly sought after, you know, player since LeBron James, but that's cool. If that works, you know. Yeah. Build the statue. I, mean, I love the optimism. I love the optimism for sure. I mean, but it was not no me, way. by the way, in case you guys were wondering that. <laughs> hey, Alex, give yeah, me a number one. Kevin's burner. Give me a number one through 46, <laughs> Alex. One through 46? Yep. Uh, we'll do 23. 23, okay, I guess for Michael Jordan maybe. Uh, Benjamin Harrison from right here in Indianapolis was the 23rd president. He was also the first president to hire a female White House staffer. And if you've not been to the Benjamin Harrison home right up the road, you should. It's fantastic. And when Benjamin Harrison, after his presidency, Benjamin Harrison returned to Indianapolis and was working as an attorney and was one day riding his horse uh, up Delaware, what is now Delaware Street, and saw a woman screaming and saw a man running and realized that a robbery or a burglary had just taken place. He whipped his horse around, rode it up alongside, and then jumped off the horse to tackle the culprit who was then arrested. And only then and after the fact did they realize it was the former president, Benjamin Harrison, who had done it. Mark, you're looking at me with a weird look. What's that, Kevin? He's no Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) (laughs) He did not have a bullet in his breast pocket with an Mm -hmm. 84-page script. That's correct. Uh, Pacers back to practice tomorrow, Thursday with the Celtics, like I said, hitting the road trip after that. Alex, great stuff, man. Appreciate the time this morning. Yeah, no problem. And I'll say this. I picked 23 for Trace Jackson Davis, not Michael Jordan. All right, fair enough. having a great year. He's having a good year. 